0: This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered legal advice. The transmission of information on this podcast is not intended to establish and receipt of such information does not establish or constitute an attorney-client relationship. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertisements. Welcome to the podcast, Jack. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, what you're doing here?
1: Well, thank you for having me, Eric. I've been in healthcare business for about 35 years. I uh, actually started with Blue Cross of Indiana before it was Anthem. Through the years, I've, I've gotten involved in the, the HMO marketplace, the practice management area, the reinsurance area of healthcare, all around healthcare, uh, healthcare-related businesses. And I've just seen all kinds of trends in the marketplace that, that uh, surprised me quite quite a bit. Every acronym in the book, you can imagine, I, I've seen through, throughout my career, working with employers, working with providers, working with brokers, working with provider networks, working with reinsurance companies and what have you, and going through healthcare reform like we have. We were very deeply involved with, with a number of healthcare reform initiatives, including here in the Chicago area and in Illinois with the co-ops and what have you. It's been a, a real interesting ride up to now.
0: Well, I'm excited to have Mm -hmm. you on because frankly, I think our podcast has had a little bit of a focus on uh, the providers and the issues providers face. Right. We've touched on the employer perspective, Mm -hmm. but I really want to go a little deeper because I think it's important, even if someone is a provider, to understand how healthcare is selected by the employer and Mm -hmm. what the process is. So um, before we plunge right into some of the specifics, yeah, can you give us your perspective if i'm running eric's manufacturing company mm-hmm. um how do i go about getting health care for my employees and and what exactly am i thinking and what sort of data do i need and how do i go about all this
1: most employers work with uh, an insurance broker that's the the typical distribution of insurance product is through uh, an insurance broker or insurance agent And typically they'll either already have a relationship with an agent or agents will call upon them indicating that they have access to certain products and services that that employer might might want. Once they've selected the agent, the agent then takes that information that the employer has, typically the census, any claims information, if it's even needed or required, and that all depends on the size of the employer and they'll go out and shop it in the marketplace. They'll shop it with Blue Cross Blue Shield, they'll shop it with Aetna, United, maybe a a local regional HMO, or possibly a third-party administrator with stop-loss. That typically takes the form of of a proposal spreadsheet. They'll spreadsheet it out. Typically it's heavily driven by cost because uh, that's how, uh, especially mid-size employers and small employers make purchasing decisions based on cost and that's what the agent will do. Agents typically have a number of favored insurance carriers that they work with. So sometimes that'll be the the basis for uh, the recommendation that they'll make to an employer and that's basically how the industry works. And then the insurance industry that supports the brokerage distribution channel uh, are constantly on conducting, you know, meetings with the agents in order for them to understand the products they offer, what differentiates them so that they can get the agent to promote and sell their products. Agents are heavily dependent on commissions and other forms and bonuses. So a lot of times it's pretty standard in the industry that Blue Cross Plans and United and Aetna pay bonuses to uh, brokers for certain levels of production and retention of business. So that's basically, I mean, that's been around uh, as long as I've been in the business, which is a little over 35 years.
0: Would you say that there's a lot of transparency, you know, from the employer perspective about what are the drivers or are they just getting, hey, if you go with this plan, you know, we'll charge you this amount per month. How does that process work through the eyes of
1: the employer? The employers essentially don't, I mean, most employers that don't, have access to claims or utilization data at all, they really don't know how to quantify the value of what it is that they pay for healthcare for their employees. Essentially, that's why the price, it's so price-driven, it's so commoditized. The only basis I have for determining if if the benefits I'm offering are of value is two things, price and a lack of complaints coming from my employees and their members. So if I can get those two items, and I have an agent or I have enough of uh, 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 information uh, relative to what's available in my marketplace that is low cost, but gives my employees decent access, that's the basis for their for their decision making. They rarely know anything beyond just the price of of the program and maybe any other ancillary benefits that may be beneficial to me or my, my members. It's price-driven. And when you get into larger accounts, larger employers, they typically are a little bit more sophisticated relative to the plan and the type of information and claims information they may want from from uh, from a carrier or a third-party administrator. Uh, typically, those are employers that are self-funded or self-insured and that's represents a little bit more than 50% of employees are in a plan like that nationally. So they, they typically are going to be reliant on having data, but at the end of the day, their aggregate spend is, is a, is a preeminent issue relative to them making a selection. And that's based on a lot of factors.
0: Well, if, if I'm the employer and I don't have all the data at my fingertips, how can I effectively negotiate for an insurance product? especially if I'm leaving or, or threatening mm-hmm. to leave my mm-hmm. existing insurer to get a lower rate somewhere else? I mean, aren't I kind of captive?
1: To some degree, that's kind of an anomaly in the market that, that is controlled a lot by the, the insurance agent. In today's environment, it's been there, again, for the last uh, 40 years. The kind of discussion that takes place is the insurance agent comes in to the employer renewal and says, I got good news and bad news. The bad news is that your rate went up 15%. The good news is it was going to be 30%, but because of my interaction with the carrier, I was able to lower the the rate of increase. So that the employer depends heavily on the agent or other agents in the marketplace that bid on their business to get that price. They don't really directly negotiate anything with an insurance company, unless they're a sizable employer in their community. Most employers will employ, you know, a broker or or a consultant to, to do that transaction to help with that transaction.
0: Well, let's bring in your company then. Mm-hmm. So you're out there. You've got uh, 2.4 million lives, and, and
1: a little bit over 2.5 million lives under management right now.
0: Okay, how do you fit into this milieu compared to some of the other actors that you've mentioned?
1: We're a healthcare risk management company. That's where we plant ourselves in the value chain as, as far as the options that employers have. And what I mean by that is as an administrator for for self-funded employers, uh, we don't always go to the marketplace with the lowest prices. We don't always compete effectively with a Blue Cross plan or an Aetna or United if they are a predominant player in the marketplace. So several years ago, we made the decision that we needed to have our own population health uh, program that we could deliver to employers because since we can't compete on unit price, we have to compete on use rates. We have to change the dynamic in the plan that manages the population. 20 years ago, we started an organization called the American Health Data Institute. And we brought in uh, two real key players into our organization to Uh, really establish our own population health data analytics company. We've always been about data as an organization, but we we didn't have the, the type of analytical framework that we really wanted to take to the marketplace. So we established American HDI, we call it, American Health Data Institute, over time as we as our medical director started to drill down into the data we we were able to define and determine that there are 27 chronic conditions and comorbidities that are manageable if the right type of regimens of care were established to help manage that population so well over 2 million lives we've been able to determine that 27 chronic conditions and comorbidities represent around 90% of an employer's real spend. And and of that spend only around, you know, 15 to 20% of the eligible members in a group are really, you know, generating that spend. So we drill down in the data, we stratify the risk in our data warehouse, we identify the sick of the sick in a population based on their illness burden and, and, and their uh, disease states, and then we work with the employer to establish a benefit plan that doesn't that that increases the ability for people to get care at the right time. So we st- structure the benefit plan to drive that kind of of uh, structure. Uh, secondarily, we have nurses who where all the data the in our data warehouse, which represents claims information, HRA data, nurse coaching information pharmacy data, biometric information, all go into our data warehouse. And from that, we profile a patient based on their prospective health index. What we do is we encourage the employer to have all their members get access to our nurse coaches, and then we reach out to those individuals on a proactive basis to get them to help self-manage their condition. And all of our uh, nurses and our dietitians that are on our staff are taught in motivational adult coaching because it's really key to really getting across to the patient what they need to do to self-manage their condition. And those individuals are given incentives in many cases from the employer that if they get your, their full regimen of care over a specified period of time, they may get a bonus, they may get a reduced employee contribution, and what have you. So. At the end of the day, we're measuring two key elements. One is service rates, which are the total number of services that we have to provide for that population of that for that employer and completion rates, which are that these members that had one or more chronic conditions received 100% of their needed regimens of care over a specified period of time. And if we can get completion rates for those regimens of care up above 50 to 60 percent, we can show reductions for an employer between 11 and 17 percent over a two to three year period. It's been consistently proven in our database.
0: A couple questions. When you talk about the reductions, that's Mm -hmm. the total cost of health care or is that the total cost of health care and lost productivity?
1: It's total. Claims cost over a specified period of time. So, we measure our results a couple ways. One is we, we measure it based on the initial uh, time that employer uh, becomes a customer of ours. So, we measure their historical cost and we then measure that against the completion rates for the chronically ill. And, and we, we adjust for plan design and contribution changes. And then over time, we continue to measure uh, completion rates to the health index of the population, whether it's improving or or not improving to the net cost of that employer. And over time, we can show deltas of 11 to 17, even greater, if an employer really uh, pushes his plan and pushes those employees to get those regimens of care satisfied over a period of time. And that's why we can compete even in markets where we don't have the lowest price because we've been doing that. And we do that, uh, Eric, in instances where we're leasing networks or PPO arrangements, whether it be a PPO that's isolated to a specific market. But in all those instances, the providers are not really integrated in the product, okay? They're passively participating like most providers do as a participating provider for a specified reimbursement rate
0: interesting and i i just want to touch real quick you're scraping a lot of data but you're not getting the actual medical records you're managing this through
1: claims data yeah. health risk assessment data mm-hmm. nurse coaching data not only nurse coaching with the individual participant but with their physician biometric data that we have in the data warehouse and pharmacy data uh the the and we've been very effective at using those those tools that are only available to us. The, the issue with medical records is typically medical records are isolated to a specified group of providers. And in most instances, those providers don't do every single episode of care that for a particular population. So they have, in some cases, less information than we do. So we've utilized very effectively claims data to do episode of care evaluation. Uh, we can use it to evaluate physician practice patterns. We can use it to evaluate whether gaps in care are being satisfied. We can use it to model um, the index of a population based on the uh, the information that we have in our data warehouse. So we've been very effective at using claims data. So you've, you've covered this notion
0: of contracting with PPOs. Uh, mm-hmm. How, how do you create your networks? I mean, if I'm a, uh, mm-hmm. if I'm an employer in a large metropolitan area, right. there are going to be a number of different providers that are probably going to be necessary unless it's a highly consolidated
1: market. Correct. Well, in, in our, in, in the normal way in which we've done business over the years, we do what we call a disruption analysis. We look at an employer, We look at the employer's uh, zip code where their members reside, and then we evaluate networks based on the composition of those networks in those various zip codes. Then we also evaluate uh, the pricing of those networks based on inpatient, outpatient, and physician charges, because we have that data.
0: Would well, you think that one area of opportunity for you would be to unify with providers and, exactly. and come up with a shared upside, shared downside, or Ex- even even I, a cap?
1: Absolutely, absolutely, and that's kind of what we think we're doing now in the marketplace, and why we we're putting a lot of our own strategic effort into uh, assisting medical providers in certain markets to deploy their own. Uh, proprietary health plan that they can deliver to the marketplace where in most cases, it would be the first time that an employer and a provider are sitting across the table discussing uh, budgets, the employer's health budget, how it's defined, the uh, health index of the population, the illness burden of a population, because the medical provider is the clinical deliverer of care. The insurance community are financial transaction people that actually that happen to control a distribution channel. So I think it's revolutionary if we can get providers to be able to sit across the uh, the table from an employer in a in a, a fully um, transparent way where we can deliver that data analytics to both the employer and the provider they can start to talk about common issues around managing the population. And now the provider is incentivized and the employer to change the way payments are made because in a fee for service environment, uh, which is still predominant in the United States, where the more I do, uh, the more I get paid regardless of the outcome that can't, that's not sustainable. So, employers have to be educated that they need to think about the way in which they pay providers differently
0: well how do you respond to the provider who says yeah you know things are tight i'm getting squeezed but if i go down the road with jack Mm -hmm. i have all these bricks that i need to keep you know and this hospital and i got to pay for all this and if i go this route you know my unit-based care it's a lot of work Mm -hmm. it's really painful and it really involves a complete change to how I deliver care.
1: And that is a challenge, I, I admit, but here's the value proposition is in these arrangements, we're we're talking about, um, working with a, you know, high quality, high performance, narrow network. So if the provider really understands the moving parts and they're not, they don't have a hundred percent market share, then this is a great opportunity for them for a certain part of their commercial payer mix to, to have a part of the business that they have a controlled relationship with an employer. It's not controlled by Blue Cross. It's not controlled by Aetna. It's not controlled by United. This is one part of the business where I have control of the employer relationship, I have an opportunity to impact plan design. How the plan's designed, I have an I can impact on the definitions of the plan itself. I have a I have impact on the delivery system, the protocols of care, and now I have the ability to generate incremental revenue that I I can't do in the current marketplace because it's controlled by somebody else. I can control the manner under which I determine how patients are attributed to my delivery system. Sure.
0: Yeah, how do you how do you go about stratifying the patient population? Then, um, let's assume you've come up with one of these mm-hmm. networks. I mean, yeah, you know, you've got software that stratifies. You said twenty six conditions, right? Twenty seven. Twenty seven. Yeah. How do you integrate in with them under these circumstances?
1: Well, the thing that we have that's of value to the provider is we've been managing employer based. Uh, employer-sponsored health plans for 40 years and our our programs are based on working with an employer-sponsored plan and we do have the ability to stratify working with uh the data that we have when we take over a plan we we really drive the employer to really encourage health risk assessments to begin with because a lot of times we don't have historical claims on a on an employer we get really basic information from the insurance carrier because they don't, they don't really have their reporting in such a format that you can really take actionable steps about a population. So we'll typically encourage uh, the employer to have their employees do an HRA because so that way we know runs right in, uh, in line with our, the 27 chronic conditions that we manage. So from that information, we can uh, reach out to the patient and validate uh, that in fact, that information they provided is accurate and we use that as one basis for initially determining, determining the illness burden of, a, of, of an individual and a population. Do you
0: find some providers that say, thanks, but I'm not having some software program tell me how I need to handle these conditions?
1: We, we haven't had that to be quite honest with you, most providers, when they drill down below the surface of our data, they agree with the way in which we've been managing the chronically ill, because most medical providers by specialty haven't really been trained in population health. They haven't been trained in preventative care or wellness. They've been trained in um, really providing a, a specified medical service for a particular Uh, Diagnosis.
0: How do you typically interact with the providers then? Um, It sounds like one thing you've done, you've taken away, you're you're certainly not a high deductible health plan. No. So, um, and there are a lot of incentives and interactions there for the employee to come and and get the care. Mm -hmm. Uh, How do you handle this vis-a-vis the providers and making sure that, Mm -hmm. that they feel engaged and part of this process?
1: That's probably one of the biggest difficulties that, that, that we or anyone else face when they're working with a provider. Typically, we're working with a, either a health system, uh, a large multi-specialty physician group, a PHO, any number. I mean, it depends on the market that we're in and, and, and who the provider is that we've been introduced to as to uh, how we interact with them. So, uh, to be honest with you, you've seen one provider, you've seen one. So they're all organized differently. They all have different uh, political situations. They they all have their, the different ways in which the delivery system is is set up. So um, we work with them at where they're at the, at that point in time.
0: Well, you said something interesting there. Let's talk about a large multi-specialty medical group. Mm-hmm. Let's call it Eric's multi-specialty okay. group. Mm-hmm. Um, hey, I wanna I wanna work with you. I wanna contract direct to employers. Do I really need uh, a complete health system as part of that? Or can I go through you and then we purchase everything on a per unit basis through your mm-hmm. PPO or how, do, how does that work?
1: That's real interesting because this comes up every time. Not every provider group has every medical service delivery item necessary to deliver a full product to an employer. And we know that. So part of our job in working with the providers to uncover what medical services that provider doesn't provide. As long as they provide the core services, uh, primary care, specialty care, some ancillary, maybe even some facility uh, services, we can generally work with them to wrap those other services through arrangements we already have in place. Uh, give you an idea, we work with uh, 83 different passive PPO networks around the United States. And any number of those networks may s- suit that provider well to fill in the gaps of service delivery they don't
0: have. So it, if you're in a market like, uh, we'll throw out Chicago, because we're sitting here, uh-huh. um, it's a pretty big market, It's a, depending how you define it, a sure. six, eight county region. Mm-hmm um could you contract with eric's multi-specialty group um even if we're just in cook county um or would we have to come up with a with a way to work with some other providers and and wrap further out
1: right i live 27 years here and and i can and i've worked in the city i've worked on the north side i've worked on the south side and at different uh, uh at different times and uh most employers are the same way with their members, you know. So you're going to have to have enough uh, dispersion of, of providers so that you can really provide cover for that employer. So it wouldn't really be viable in, if all you were doing is providing medical services just in Cook County or just in Chicago because there's so many employees that live like in DuPage County or Will or McHenry or Lake and, and so there you, you, you might end up as a provider having to partner. Uh, that's one particular opportunity. You might want to, um, uh, to develop, uh, uh, other relationships with providers in those other communities, uh, that ha- are like-minded with you relative to what it is you want to deliver to the marketplace where. Uh, there could be also an opportunity where we uh, attach you to a network that we already have in place, where the core group of providers in Cook County provide the plurality of care for a particular employer, but where uh, those members need access to other providers, we, we give them access. But I would say, legitimately, you really want to have as much um, uh, cover around the, the Uh, City of Chicago and the Collar counties so that you could at least deliver basic uh, primary care services, I would say, and then we could probably wrap everything else into other contractual arrangements we have.
2: Let's turn briefly to a topic that's uh, near and dear to my heart, networks and antitrust. Most health systems or or providers even, I, I don't think we could say that this product is limited to health systems, they have challenges insofar as they either don't have geographic coverage or they don't provide care up and down the entire continuum. How do you approach that as far as developing the networks?
1: We look at at the where the provider is in terms of the medical service delivery that they currently do. And then we evaluate where they have as you stated gaps in medical service delivery and and then we look at the potential of filling in those gaps with already existing contractual arrangements that we might have and we currently have 85 different provider networks or PPO's that we contract with and we do that for a number of reasons one is most providers that are sponsoring a program like this because they're not always fully uh, financially or clinically integrated with every provider in, in, in their geographic area so There has to be some means of closing those gaps so that that sponsoring provider will not run awry of of potential antitrust or price fixing or anything of that nature. So what we've done uh, is we've been able to create the custom proprietary network for that sponsoring organization.
2: So if I've got St. Elsewhere Health System and I've got you know, a couple of hospitals, a physician group, probably don't have home health, certainly don't have anything in the way of uh, rehab or long-term care. Are you saying you can bolt that on and I can have the St. Elsewhere branded product offered uh, out to the public, direct to employers?
1: That's exactly correct. You can basically have a full service delivery system with these other contractual arrangements that are, as you stated, bolted on, uh, with, and, and over time, you build more critical mass with your program, you can start to reach out to some of those providers that may be under more of a PPO contract arrangement and look at talking to them about working through the PPO arrangement uh, for a better contractual rate because now you can support a better contractual rate with, with, with uh, volume or they could make those other providers over time part of their clinically integrated network if they have one.
2: And how about geographic coverage is you know if i've got uh three systems you know with maybe an overlapping geography uh have you done this to to give the geographic coverage to make the plan attractive to employers?
1: yes and uh the way we've done that is we with the wrap networks we can we can also provide coverage irregardless of where the members reside because what invariably happens is a uh, a local sponsoring provider who's branding this program as their own uh when when the program is sold in the marketplace it doesn't uh, most employers have employees that reside in other geographic locations and that provider in order to deliver a full solution to that employer is going to have to have access to providers in other locations uh, another way we do that is if the employer has a concentration of employees in different locations but the primary majority of their employees reside within the geographic location of the sponsoring providers we can do what we call disruption analysis we can look at okay, here's this employer in Chicago, but they have employees in St. Louis, they have employees in Detroit. We'll look at those other markets for purposes of pricing and network access.
2: How have employers responded to this in your experience? Um, are they are they op- welcoming with open arms or are they, you know, you have to do some talking or uh, where where do things sit?
1: The key is the message that you're delivering and the value proposition that you're delivering to that employer. And as I said earlier, uh, what we're trying to do is marry the the local provider with the employer and enable that a, a dialogue to happen around the care and quality of healthcare that's being delivered to that employer, but it's being done with the clinical provider of care sitting across the table from that employer. And a lot of employers have been looking for this type of transaction for years because Most of the large commercial carriers and and TPAs for that matter and networks are the intermediary between the employer and the network provider and and many times they don't even know that they have the ability to take this and deliver this solution to a provider. So the message in the value proposition is key. The second to that is we have to demonstrate that the pricing is there. So a provider that's delivering their own proprietary network to an employer has to price their product to where, they, to where that employer is going to find it to be attractive enough to relegate their employees to a narrow, narrower but higher-performing network. And employers heretofore are, be, are moving more and more toward these arrangements than ever before because of the price intolerance in the marketplace.
2: Well, if St. Elsewhere is starting off cold here, and we've never done this before, how do we get our arms around how we price and accomplish plan design and all this other great stuff you're talking about?
1: We always feel that the first place that a health system, especially, that's sponsoring one of these direct-to-employer arrangements, needs to seriously consider doing it on their own population to begin with because it's a natural Controlled laboratory where they control the plan design. It's their own, the delivery system, the care management of of services for their own employees. In other words, they really need to think strongly about doing that. And there's also some self-serving elements that are are built into those. One is to optimize domestic steerage so they can save their plan even more money, and and that's dependent on what their occupancy rates are and how many staff beds and how high of an occupancy rate they have because the higher occupancy they have, the less they may be tend to want to drive domestic steroids. So there's considerations around that, but they need to experiment on their own population, work through the bugs of, of how they're going to handle referrals and attribu- attribution of patients, And then it's a strategic issue for them also, because when they decide to go to the marketplace, they want the product to be well-oiled and and working effectively. They can do that with their own plan. And there's another strategic element that's tied to this is that when they go to the marketplace with a proprietary program direct-to-employer, invariably the marketplace is going to ask, well, what are you doing with your own plan? and they need to be able to say, we're buying our own plan, which is why we're taking this to the marketplace.
2: I guess, and maybe this is obvious, but it, it strikes me that one of the key benefits you have, I guess I shouldn't use the word key, right? Key benefit administrator. Right. You don't have to put up these enormous insurance reserves and get an insurance license, you know, which could be a real impediment. And uh, you already have existing brokerage relationships. Do you want to comment on that at all? or
1: The one thing that Many health systems that we've talked to over the last few years are, are, we're concerned about is, are we an insurance company? Do we have to assume risks? Are are we going to have to put up a, a lot of capital and surplus to support a license? None of that is required under the model that that we've been deploying for the last few years. These are essentially, for the provider that's sponsoring the plan, fee-for-service arrangements with an upside gain share. They are primarily sold and promoted to self-insured, self-funded employers in their marketplace. And in many parts of the country, we have programs that could go down to two employee lives on a level-funded basis, uh, which looks and smells just like a fully insured contract, but it is partially self-funded. And so they don't have to worry about filings or, or insurance bureau issues or contractual arrangements or compliance. It's all pretty much there. It's already in place, but it's got to be customized and modified to fit that provider's uh, current situation, They're the, the network providers and their own uh, in, internal protocols.
2: Jack, one area that
0: there's been a lot of uh, commentary on is the issue of costs around pharmaceuticals. Everyone says they're escalating at an unsustainable rate, and certainly a lot of even healthcare providers say their costs are are out of control and they're passing those on as well. What are what are you doing around this issue?
1: Well, we recently made a, a, a decision as a as an organization not to play that game any longer ourselves. We've been a uh, a very large user of a number of commercial pharmacy benefit management companies. And there are a lot of games that are being played with rebates and average wholesale price and what have you. And, and we know it, we know that those games have been played. So we made a conscious decision that for two reasons that we need to make that whole uh, process transparent. We believe that the employers are really funding a large part of this and it's impacting the cost of their plan. Uh, Pharmacy is becoming a much larger percentage of the overall health spend of an employer, some cases in excess of 20%, with some employers that we know. And a lot of that is due to uh, things that happen below the line that really nobody knows about, which is why some of the big PBMs are doing, doing so well financially. So we made the conscious decision that we want to eliminate Uh, A large part of all those, we want to eliminate all uh, the um, financial arrangements that happen in PBMs that don't directly benefit the employer. So rebates are passed on 100% to all the employers that we work with, and all the uh, wholesale prices that are directly negotiated with manufacturers are all 100% passed on to the employers. Uh, the only thing that we do is we have a pharmacy admin fee to do the transaction. The other reason that uh, we feel it's it's absolutely critical import, important is that we integrate pharmacy into our data warehouse, and and it's important that we know that what the compliance rate is for pharmacy in order to properly manage patient populations. A lot of commercial pharmacy benefit managers don't really integrate their data with claims information. So we, there's two reasons. We feel that like, like we have an obligation as a, as, a, as a plan fiduciary for certain employers to provide them with complete transparency of every transaction that happens relative to pharmacy spend and to help that employer manage that spend with our clinical staff.
0: So if you're not getting rebates, I think we could both agree that rebates um, have some effect mm-hmm. on tiering within formularies. Mm-hmm. How are you? How are you conducting the tiering? I mean, is this strictly this drug is cheaper, or you know, do you have analytics to support we, the efficacy? We
1: do you have analytics to support certain formularies that employers can get access to? The larger the employer. As we said, said earlier, the more sophisticated they might be, they may have a particular formulary we want to duplicate uh, initially, and we'll do all that. We're, we're flexible with, with respect to that.
0: Wow, that's pretty impressive. How do you respond to some of these recent initiatives that you hear about with some of these brokers go up to, uh, to employers and they say, hey, I, I have this great plan. We're going to use um, Medicare as our base rate and we're going to pay a little more than that. And, you know, we'll come up with something and that'll be the health plan you offer to your employees. Um, and they Mm -hmm. don't go ahead and negotiate that openly with, with the providers. Uh, It's a little bit of a shell game. What are your thoughts around that? Because obviously uh, that might be very attractive to an employer in lieu of what you're doing.
1: We refer to those types of arrangements as non-network reference based pricing arrangements. And, um, as we, kind of talked about earlier, th- these employers in this country are, are at a uh, level of price intolerance that they'll almost buy whatever they think is going to work to reduce their cost. So there are a lot of operators in the marketplace now that are really proponents of these types of arrangements. Uh, we think there's a lot of problems with them, We even to the extent that uh, they may not even be qualified health plans under the law because they don't address the maximum out-of-pocket price. When brokers are selling these types of arrangements, they're really selling the employer a non-network plan. The providers that the the members go to under these reference-based plans don't have any contractual obligation for a reimbursement rate. So when the member goes to get medical services, the plan that the employer has adopted asserts exactly how much they're going to pay for that service it could be a, a multiple of medicare but it's always lower than the market rates in a particular area so an example might be this. this plan document will say that the most that they'll pay for a institutional stay is 120% of medicare when the actual lowest commercial rate in the market is 150% so the member goes into the hospital, they get the care, and the hospital bills the plan charges, whatever their charges are, which could be three or 400% of Medicare. So the member ends up getting balance billed, and then the plan asserts its rights to the medical provider that you've accepted the payment we made, and that's all the plan we're an ERISA plan so we're not subject to state insurance department regulations so that's all we're going to pay you and if the patient gets balanced bill for that particular service then these operators will provide patient advocacy you know they'll work with the provider to settle that claim at the point where the provider is balance billing the patient but these arrangements are, in my way, somewhat insidious because the member is the one that's left holding the bag because the provider is going after the patient then for the balance bill.
0: Right. And the member thinks they have full,
1: full coverage. insurance
0: coverage. Correct. When in reality, they could be on the hook for
1: huge bills. Absolutely. And And... Two people really lose in that transaction. Well, the employer loses because the the member's typically not satisfied, okay? But the member obviously loses because they could be subject to balanced billing for years, long after these plans may be terminated and they move back to a traditional network arrangement. But the provider's hurt, too, because the provider has just been relegated to nothing more than a commodity, all you're worth is 120% of Medicare. And providers that allow these types of arrangements to continue to uh, persist in their community are, are adding to that same level of commoditization of, of medical providers.
0: Well, with all due respect, I think it's worse than commoditizing. You're, mm-hmm. you're becoming the enemy if you're the provider. I mean, you are you know, legally entitled mm-hmm. To your full charges. Mm-hmm. In some instances, you're required to make collection efforts on those, and you know the poor patient who thinks that they were covered ends up, you know, holding the bag. The employer, from from your description, probably doesn't even realize exactly just how insidious this is. So, you know, the the bad actor in all this is the one putting together the the plan, right?
1: That's true, but but it happens even before that. Because before the employer makes the decision to move into this, this area, they've already been told that the provider's the enemy. They've already been told that the provider is uh, charging well in excess of what their costs are. Uh, and, and so that process of vilifying the provider has already taken place long before the employer adopts the plan, and that's the problem if the provider doesn't have a connection to the community where they can start to define the value that they deliver in the community and talking directly with employers somebody's going to fill that void because the employers already are, are price intolerant and on top of that they're being told that the medical provider is part of my problem so it, they're they're very vulnerable to these types of pitches from different brokers and TPA different people in the marketplace that are pitching reference-based pricing. And they believe it. They believe that, yeah, this is the answer. And the problem with that is that it may only be an answer financially for two or three years. Because as I said earlier on, the one thing that this does is it addresses the unit price of healthcare. It doesn't address use rates.
0: You're obviously a strong advocate for, for what I might call provider-led health plans then. What do you see the process being going forward? Uh, you know, I mean, we're at a point where costs of health care are spiraling mm-hmm. out of control. You're, you're offering an option. If I've got St. Elsewhere in uh, Nowhereville, uh, you know, how do I start with this whole process?
1: Definitions are key, and when you say provider-led health plans that reminds me of what happened back in the late 80s and 90s when a lot of medical providers started getting into the HMO industry. And there was a lot of capital and surplus required to get a certificate of authority. There was a lot of cost to build infrastructure. And and, and they felt that that was the right thing to do at the time, and I'm not talking about that at all. I'm talking about uh, providers Uh, developing a plan uh, and and constructing a network uh, strategy around uh, supplying services to self-funded employers. And in our model, it doesn't require that they come up with any capital and surplus to support risk. These arrangements are essentially discounted fee-for-service arrangements with an upside gain share, but with an eye on also working with some employers, on the total cost of care because the one thing we do know how to do is help establish a basis for what an employer budget would be
0: let's assume i want to start today Mm. i pick up the phone i say jack i want to get going how long does it take to stand this plan up i mean already i you know i realized that 2020 just started i would assume most employers are, if they haven't already made decisions about benefits for 2021, that'll probably start happening fairly soon, right? Are we looking at 2022?
1: No, No, not at all. We can actually establish and put together a full plan with all the component parts to allow a provider to deliver a turnkey solution to the marketplace in less than eight months. And that includes the delivery system, Uh, that includes the actuarial pricing of the network, that includes the reinsurance, that includes the plan design, that includes the managed care protocols. We've done it enough times to where we've we've got it down to a point where we can deliver a full turnkey product in between six and eight months.
0: And how does that work with respect to uh, the employer relationships? Because even though st elsewhere is in a community they might not have direct line of sight into those hr
1: departments that's true we still believe that it's important that we work in the community with the stakeholders that are there and that would include the insurance agents and brokers that that are actively selling and promoting uh, health insurance products in the marketplace we work with the same type of of uh of agency distribution system uh, we think it's important that this gives the the healthcare system an opportunity to communicate directly to the, the employers in their community, to give them an, an opportunity to explain exactly what they're doing to help those employers with their cost.
0: If I were to look at the continuum, I might characterize that as uh, care providers have talked a lot about clinical integration. So I mm-hmm. coordinate my physicians with my hospitals, with my home health. Um, and you're talking about taking that from the other end of the chain, coordinating the employer down through sort of the managed care product, we'll call it, mm-hmm. the care product, and then into the provider. So you're talking about you're, you're not going to interlace the hospital and the physician necessarily, um, but you are talking about coordinating sort of the total cost and the total approach to healthcare care with the employer through the health system.
1: The health system is the primary stakeholder that's developing the program. So that's not necessarily the case. What we're trying to do is marry our 40 years of experience working with employers, with the healthcare provider that's delivering the clinical care, and enabling those two people to sit down at the table and work on uh, the health of the population. And that hasn't happened in any great way in our country. So, uh, if if clinical integration is, is the ultimate goal for most of these medical provider networks, they want to be fully clinically integrated. And I think that is an ultimate goal. We, We we're all for that, but that doesn't have to be the current state of the provider that wants to sponsor one of these arrangements. They don't have to be fully clinically integrated. They don't have to be a accountable care organization under the law, but there should be components of that initial provider's structure that would allow them to deliver this type of medical delivery system to an employer.
0: Well, my crystal ball broke, but I'll ask you about yours. Let's say for the next five years, you know, where do you see things, where do you see them going?
1: if the political situation is uh, sustained in the next election, I don't see there being a lot of regulatory impact on, uh, on the marketplace like there was in the past. So I think there'll be a lot of opportunity for innovators to do some really good things, but the status quo is going to continue. There's no doubt about it. You're still going to see employers, uh, grapple with the cost of healthcare, and you're going to still see uh, ins- health insurers uh, buy for uh, market share. But I, my hope is that more and more uh, medical providers and more and more employers will start to see the value of trying to work together to solve part of the problem, because um, it, it's, it's not going to change. Healthcare costs are going to continue to go up in my way of thinking, Um, but that would be my hope, is that we would see more providers really want to take the lead and be something to somebody in their community.
0: Jack, thanks for joining us. It was a pleasure having you uh, chatting here on Talking Pop Health.
1: Thank you, Eric. I appreciate it.